Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ryan Painter Podcast. Today, we talk to Dr. Julian Summers, SFU Distinguished Professor working in the Health Sciences Department. His areas of interest are clinical psychology, substance use, and mental health, primary health reform, and homelessness. And Dr. Summers and I go in depth and great detail about the current approach of the BC government to the overdose crisis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ryan Painter Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Painter, as always, bringing you the best interviews with some of the biggest newsmakers, not just in BC, but Canada-wide. I have some really exciting interviews on tap, and the interview I do um, today with Dr. Julian Summers is an amazing in-depth portrait of not just how BC has approached the overdose crisis, but also a really good extensive look at the ways in which, and one one could certainly go down this direction, it looks like, or it presumes to be looked like, the overdose crisis is being utilized, um, one could say, for personal gain uh, by some very interested parties, which is a horrible thing to think about. but as, as you, you tune in and listen, you'll certainly hear some very concerning things um, coming from, from Dr. Summers. And, and look, before we get into, into this interview, I, I want to just preface this by saying this is a bit of a challenging <laughs> downer of a topic to go into the holiday season break with. And uh, it certainly, um, you know, it's not, it's not an easy time of year for most folks. I mean, a lot of people go into the holiday season, not really feeling like it's a great time of year, whether they're dealing with money stress, job stress, family stress, um, family health issues, or whether they've just lost somebody, whether it's through an overdose crisis or, or through cancer. I, I just read in the uh, Victoria Times columnist this morning a story about a grandmother who had been diagnosed with uh, end-stage um gastric cancer and had been given about, I think, a year, a little over a year to live with treatment. And it took her 10 weeks to even get to the first stages of treatment. And at that point, it was too late. She had, I think they said she had maybe a few weeks left, a month left to live, all because she couldn't get the help she needed. And so instead of pursuing treatment options because it just the, the cancer was too far gone. She created these boxes for her grandkids with birthday cards to take them all to 18 years of age. And then she opted for, for maid or medical assistance in dying. And she, she did, she passed away this past summer and her family has just now come out to talk about this in the hopes that there'll be an approach from the current BC government that actually deals with cancer effectively. You know, I don't know how how familiar you are to and listeners are to what's happening here in BC, but the cancer system in BC is so bad that 
we have to send folks to Bellingham in the United States. Expenses paid, apparently, although I'm I'm relatively certain that in short order we'll find out that uh, some expenses probably haven't been paid. This kind of stuff always happens. But but regardless, let's say that doesn't happen. And it's, all expenses have certainly been paid. Even the uptake in that has not been what it was supposed to be. Uh, I read a report uh, recently saying that they were expecting anywhere from 50 to 75 folks a month to go to Bellingham. And they've only had like a dozen able to to get the paperwork filled out or or get the plans together to go and get treated. I mean, look, cancer care in this province is in a shambles. And w- this hits me particularly hard. As, as listeners will know, I, I lost my dad to small cell lung cancer in... In 2007, the year I graduated from university, he was able to make it to my graduation ceremony. But by that point, he had um, undergone so much treatment from chemotherapy and radiation that he couldn't be outside in the sun. Um, so he he had an umbrella and stuff with him, and um, I didn't get any photos with him um, the day that I graduated, which uh, which still hurts. Um, but he was there, and he got to see it, and I got to see him. Uh, so that was, that was good. And then I lost him three months after that. He was 51 years old. And then my very dear grandmother, uh, who I've known ever since I was born, she was literally with me all the time. We had such a closeness, um, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and passed away, uh, when I was 29. So that would have been in um oh gee yeah my math is bad 2014 2013 2014 somewhere around there uh, she passed away and my mom also nearly passed away uh she she was diagnosed with um colorectal cancer and it wasn't necessarily the cancer that that almost took her out it was it was the treatment in, in that at that time. They they had discovered a very rare cancer in her. Um, the way the cancer had impacted her epithelial cells is not very common. And so they had to get these doctors from all over Canada and the United States, this whole panel of, of professionals to kind of get together and recommend a, a treatment modality for her. And they, they got to it very early, fortunately, and they were able to very quickly, within a matter of uh, weeks, she was um, undergoing chemo and radiation, and it was brutal for her. And what what nearly uh, um, got the better of her was the blood clots from the treatment. Um, uh, she was just in agony. It was brutal for her. But she's cancer-free for over 10 years now, I think. 10 years, maybe a little more. And I'm so proud of her because she just, she never gave up, you know, and she was so healthy. My mom was a health nut, like beyond, beyond me. And mom, if you're listening to this, I'm always trying <laughs> to be as healthy as I can. Um, but she, uh, she just, she never gave up. She kicked cancer's ass and, um, you know, it did result in her getting a, a stoma put in place and lots of surgeries and stuff. And, and there's been complications from that too. And, um, you know, she's always told me that when you, once you have cancer, there's no going back to a time before you had cancer because you always kind of worry that any 
feeling or any discomfort or any something is is cancer. Um, and the reason why I, I, I say this is because my dad was diagnosed in early January of 2007, started going into treatment within a few weeks, chemo, radiation. My grandmother, who I think um, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma about two or three years prior to um, her passing, I might have my times wrong, my mom would remember better than me, um, she got treatment right away, chemo, radiation, um, and I got, I got my dad for nine months, and I got my grandma for several years, um, and there's nothing like having that time. And I just can't imagine the pain that people are in. Just waiting. Waiting is, when you have something like this, the waiting is torture. It's, it's absolute torture. And, I mean, I've heard stories about folks waiting for a year to get into oncology in this province. That's not fair. That's not just, that's not healthcare. It's just torture. Because you don't know what's happening inside your body. And this is supposed to be a healthcare system that's here for people. Heavens, we pay into it for fuck's sake. And we can't even access it. It's brutal. So, you know, I, I when I read the, the, the story in the Times columnist this morning, I tweeted, you know, this government has failed. David Eby has failed. Adrian Dix have failed. People shouldn't have to choose medical assistance in dying because they can't get cancer care. I'm sure this is just one example and that there's examples we're not hearing about because families go through this and going through it is enough, let alone going public with it. And so this government has absolutely failed. It, and on, the, on cancer, it is so personal for me because I am grateful beyond words for the years and the months that I got with my father and my grandmother. And I'm grateful that my mom was saved. She's still with me today. I can't imagine her not being around. You know, it very nearly broke me when I lost my dad and then my grandmother. I'm so grateful for the people who I have around me, my wife and my mom and my very dearest friends and, and family. But I was, I was lucky and my mom was lucky. And, you know, our healthcare system needs to be there for people. It needs to be there. And right now it's not. I mean, how many more people have to come out with these stories of waiting? Those of you listening, can you imagine putting yourself in that position? I mean, how we worry about getting that kind of diagnosis at the best of times, let alone getting it and then having to wait. It's something I can't fathom. And you know, the thing about the mental health issues I've dealt with, one of them is I do have a bit of a health anxiety. And uh, fortunately, I've, I've gotten to the point now where I'm, I'm managing it really well. But if it came to the point where I was getting the news knock on wood that this doesn't happen for me for a very long time, but that I was getting the news that I 
has some kind of cancer. I don't know if I'd have faith that the BC healthcare system could save me. Like, truly, I've lost faith. And it's not the doctors, it's not the nurses, it's not the oncologists, it's none of them. They're doing the best they possibly can. It's the government. The, the blame falls at the foot of the Minister of Health and the Premier. It falls at the feet of the Minister of Health because the Minister of Health hasn't responded to this situation. You know, just when COVID hit, the Minister of Health was told that cancer rates are going to skyrocket when we get out of COVID and that we need to be ready. They haven't done it nearly enough to make us ready for that, let alone the fact that there's a million British Columbians without a family doctor. Let's, we don't need to go there. But the Premier is to blame because the Premier has kept the Health Minister in place when he should have been let go a long time ago. And uh, yeah, that's some strong language for me. But look, this, this is people's lives. This is people's lives. And you don't, you shouldn't get a second chance to fuck that up. If you screw up once, you should be out and get someone else in there who can get the job done. You know, this is government. It's not a, it's not a sewing circle. It's not a sitting around the campfire singing kumbaya. If you, if you can't even take care of your citizens, why are you in the job? And it's, um, it's inexcusable that we still have a health minister who's is absolutely failed abysmally. And then the opioid pandemic on top of that, you know, a recent, a recent bulletin from the BC government said that the BC coroner service says that seven people a day are now dying in BC from the toxic drug crisis. And that 2023, once again, will surpass the record for the deadliest year in the province's history. And we, in my interview with Dr. Julian Summers, we get, we get into, we get into the why we're in this place. And then we get into a how, how we can approach this better. But we spend a lot of time on the why. Because I think it's so important to understand, you know, why we're here. And the why tells us the how, like the how we got here, and then the how we can get out. But why are we here? We've had a public health emergency, I think since 2016. That's the when the previous government was in power. 2016, we're coming up on 10 years of, of a public health crisis for toxic drugs and the overdose crisis in BC. And people are dying at greater numbers than previous. And every year sets a record. Every successive year sets a record for the deadliest year in the province's history. And uh, we just need to remove as many barriers as possible for people who don't have doctors or who can't access a walk-in clinic or who are people who are in remote communities. We just need to get the barriers out of the way 
so that people can access programs, like real programs. But we also need to address these social determinants of health, like the real determinants that are pushing people into these situations. You know, we know that if you haven't heard, BC's chief coroner, uh, Lisa Lapointe, is um, is leaving her her office. She's not re-upping as the chief coroner. It'll be very interesting to see what Lisa Lapointe does next, because the previous public health officer, um, as you'll hear in the interview I do with Dr. Summers, now heads up a heroin dispensary program or a heroin public heroin provision program. It's very interesting when you see health professions and health professionals go from government work to corporate work. Um, you have to wonder about conflict of interest stuff, but <laughs> Dr. Summers and I talk about that. But um, BC's chief coroner is leaving frustrated and disappointed, according to a CBC News article, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. With overdose, overdose deaths, because they're expected to hit a record level this year. And uh, she reported 189 deaths in October, which is above what they thought were going to be the number of deaths. I mean, and just imagine that. Just imagine that. We cannot keep having a scattershot ad hoc approach to this problem. We need a government that institutes a cross-ministerial approach to dealing with this crisis. And we need to bring in people who are experts from outside of the current government and outside of the current government circle to start talking about how to fix this problem. People who don't have an interest in it for money making or whatever it is proving a point people who can come in who are policy and health experts who don't have any skin in the game and who can help us not just stop people from dying because that is and it should be the first impetus but then getting people off of these drugs off of the streets into housing into jobs and into society so that they can be active members of our community. Isn't that what we want? Isn't, isn't that the aim? Am I wrong? Like, isn't that supposed to be what the aim is here? To get people better so they can stop doing drugs, stop having to resort to whatever they need to do to get money, to get drugs, get them into housing, get them work, gainful employment, so they can re-enter society. Or maybe that's Maybe we're asking for too much. I don't know. I don't think we are. Um, as I say in my interview with, uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to get ahead of the interview, but I, I say it almost feels like the government has just given up and it's just throwing out drugs to folks because they know they can't, they can't solve this problem. You know, 2,400 deaths in 2022. We're going to surpass that this year. And the government's just, well, we can't solve this problem, so let's just toss some drugs out to folks. But I don't want you to get doom and gloom on this because Dr. Summers, at the end of the interview, 
says there's hope. And I, I admit on this issue, I feel, I feel down about it because I know people who have lost folks to the overdose crisis, but Dr. Summers actually provides some hope at the end of this interview. And so I want you to listen all the way through so you can get the why and the how, how to get out of it and how we can find hope in this crisis. So let's dive into my interview with Simon Fraser, University Distinguished Professor, Dr. Julian Summers. Dr. Summers, thanks so much for joining us. I am really, really happy to have you here with me today on, I'm sure, what is an increasingly busy time of the season for you as we gear up towards the holiday break. So thanks for spending time with us. Yes, my, totally my pleasure. And uh, yeah, busy for everybody, I think. Um, you know, we're, I feel like I've got so much I want to talk to you about that uh, 45 minutes to an hour just can't possibly cover it. I think I'd just like to start with kind of this most recent um, tweet uh, that you you reposted from Sheldon Bailey, um, where the HIV Legal Network uh, posted, uh, you know, quote, media release, more than 130 experts in substance use call on federal government to continue to support and scale up safer supply programs. So I know there's a lot we can talk about here, um, and we're going to definitely dive into it, but I want to set a bit of context for folks who are listening, who might not be from BC, who might not know what safer or safe supply is supposed to be, um, and why you're critical of it. So if you can set a bit of context for us before we kind of roll into more of a, a casual conversation about it, I think that might be helpful. Sure. Awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah, so there's, um, there is a, a, essentially a, um, a direct-to-the-public information campaign that um, seems to be playing out. It, it, um, it's, it's playing out through these kinds of open letters and um, I, I'll, I'll try to put it, you know, the way we're talking about things right now into a bit of a context. There's um, a, a pretty substantial tradition of research on substance use, harmful substance use, um, addiction, um, and things that put people at risk, um, things that we can do to reduce those risks, and also um, what happens over the long term. And part of the good news in recent decades of research is that over the long term, most people who have an addiction, a drug-related addiction, uh, at some point in their life um, tend not to have that addiction later on. This is true for smoking. Um, alcohol addiction, cannabis, cocaine, and opioid addictions. It's really true for, for all of them. And um, what this helps us you know, see is that there are tremendous opportunities for change. Change happens naturally. Uh, and so if we better understand why it happens, we can try to accelerate it. So there's a lot of work has been done around that. Now, for people who are extremely... Um, uh, challenged, uh, they're challenged economically, socially, as well as psychologically. This is a group that I've essentially um, focused most of my career on. I started in Riverview Hospital, which is our, which was our large uh, psychiatric hospital in in BC in the 1980s, and most of my research has has involved working with people who would were either in hospitals like that or or today would be hospitals like that. Um, but but aren't um, so people living homeless and and involved with um, you know a wide variety of, of of life challenges, even among these people, um, with it, it's it's completely reasonable to expect 
substantial improvement if we provide them with effective supports, and, and we tend not to. Now, drugs fit into this. Um, I'm trying to come at, come at it this way. If we think about the types of people who are at most risk right now for poisoning, um, and how could we help them? There um, is this really robust um, knowledge base showing that we can truly help people immediately and in substantial ways, like today. And some of that does involve drugs. I mean, mm -hmm. some of that, uh, so, so most people listening will be familiar with um, methadone, like methadone's used a lot, sure. And, it, and so methadone is used and it's specifically used when um, to help people who are, who are transitioning from um, drug problems that include use of opioids, right? Many people are using multiple drugs. Most of the people that, most of the people that we're losing to drug poisonings have multiple different types of drugs in their systems when they pass. Mm. But um, methadone and, and some other opioids are particularly useful in helping with the transition from that class of drugs, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. The types of drugs that we're, that we're also using um, in the short term, at least, to help people transition include benzodiazepines, um, and other types of opioids other than uh, methadone, for instance, uh, um, heroin is used in some contexts. Um, and then there are other opioids that, that have more sort of complex makeups that are used. But the point is there's, there, there's already a range of drugs that are used um, in the course of helping people to make other larger changes in their lives, like moving from the street into some sort of a supported living environment, moving from unemployment to reestablishing employment or reestablishing maybe vocational training or education used in, in basically as an aid in, in those transitions. What Safe Supply is proposing to do um, is provide a larger array of drugs, not in the context of treatment. So whereas methadone maintenance therapies, heroin assisted therapies are using drugs as an adjunct to a much more kind of complex uh, and fulsome intervention that, that includes social aspects in a major way, I mentioned like housing and jobs and that kind of thing. So Safe Supply, if you look at the Government of Canada's website and the literature that describes it, is um, uh, an idea around providing drugs, a larger array of drugs to people outside the context of treatment for them to use often on their own. So um, it just independent use. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I, there are a few reasons why I and others have, have objected to that. But I'd say the, the, the one I would emphasize first and foremost is that um, we ought to be doing a much better job following through and implementing evidence-based approaches to helping people reestablish housing, reestablish uh, caring relationships, healthy relationships, healthy care for themselves, and um, and not putting other things in front that are untested and have clear risks associated with them. Because what this is asking us to envision is we know that there are people on our streets, we see them living with serious mental illnesses. In our work, um, many of the most common diagnoses are schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. 
And we're being asked to prioritize taking a chance essentially on expanding the array of drugs that we make available to these people in the hope that we're gonna reduce their exposure to illicit drugs, right? Mm -hmm. The so-called toxic drug supply. So this is our hope. We're gonna try and get in there with prescribed drugs and make it less likely that they're exposed, but they're still homeless. Mm -hmm. They're still forced to steal for food and to survive. Mm -hmm. They're still at risk of predation from people around them. And it, it makes no sense whatsoever to be ignoring the opportunity to intervene in ways that we know make a dramatic difference for the better for the person, for their family members, for the community, and instead roll the dice on something that has clear risk associated with it. And we're seeing some of those risks play out in terms of the evidence of diversion and harms related to drug diversion. So um, it's it's a matter of trying to get the, the balance right between the uh, the kind of the structural and overall life changes that we need to provide to people in order for them to achieve greater much greater wellness and the inclusion of of, of um, pharmaceuticals in that in that mix and I, I think the safe supply um, advocates have the mix really really badly wrong if if the safe supply protocol I guess or or whatever we're calling it is such an untested um, method to try to help folks. Because what I often hear from people, whether it's online or the work that I've done in community, it's the, the focus is always on, well, let's keep people alive as long as we can so we can treat them. And uh, that's perhaps a bit uh, hyperbolic to say that's all I hear, but certainly that is the message that I hear the most frequently. Well, our, we're trying to keep people alive so they can get treatment. If this is such an untested uh, method of intervention or harm reduction, um, why are we doing it? Why is BC uh, full bore into it? Um, I read this morning that it looks like um, the BC government and David Eby at a press conference said the province is going to rethink how they're looking at this crisis through a different communications strategy. <laughs> Frankly, don't know how that's going to help, but... Uh, you know, uh, we'll see. So, you know, it seems in BC, and I can't talk about any other province because I, I don't know, but it seems in BC and Canada, harm reduction, harm reduction, harm reduction, safe supply is all we've really been talking about for the last four-ish, five-ish years. If it's so untested, why are we doing it? Um, it's a it's a very, very good question. Um, you know, when some of the relevant, I guess, um, Experiences elsewhere in, include Portugal's experience, which is which is acknowledged. Uh, both Portugal and Switzerland are acknowledged in the provincial health officers' report, um, uh, recommending decriminalization and an increase in the pharmaceutical supply. Um, but there doesn't seem to be much appreciation. I, I think it's growing, but even it, her report doesn't doesn't appreciate that. The changes in the law that were made in Portugal and and changes in the supply of, of provision of heroin in Switzerland were not the main components that resulted in improvement. And people from those countries are on the record um, saying if all we did was um, change the law around drug possession, 
we would have made things worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's there seems to be a kind of a, a failure to assimilate what are really the active ingredients in turning around a poisoning crisis, because most of them are social, and many and they must we must also focus on prevention. So if we're thinking of, if we if we go down this road a little bit further and we think about okay well the thing, what do, what do I mean by social well mm-hmm. in in our research we 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 showed in 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 the ran, using a randomized trial design that when people are concentrated together even when they have a lot of supports uh, they don't do nearly as well as people who are given the opportunity to choose where they would like to live and to choose from among options that include just housing that's dispersed. Mm-hmm. throughout uh, otherwise kind of air quotes, normal uh, looking neighborhoods, normal looking buildings, mixes of people. And as it turns out, independent housing is what the vast majority of people who are living on the streets with mental illnesses and addictions would opt for. We, but we don't housing, think... Meaning housing where someone's on their own in a space and they're kind of yeah. more in control of... Yeah, of yeah. Their, yeah. Their and, and, yeah. and listeners can rest assured that, um, you know, we've we've done this um, with thousands of people in Canada in randomized trials in across the country. And uh, uh, we can successfully <laughs> help people who are deemed the you know hardest to house to transition into community settings um, where they experience marked improvements in health and also marked reductions in their, their experience of crises. 71% fewer criminal convictions and 45% fewer medical emergencies than people who were receiving usual care in Vancouver. This was this was part of our design. Mm-hmm. Um, so the and and they and these things cost the same. So it's not about money. It's about willingness to 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 make to make changes. But both Switzerland and Portugal used as an organizing principle uh, the phrase social reintegration. The Portuguese national strategy um, states, and this is a quote, strictly speaking, there's no such thing as addiction treatment without social reintegration. Hmm. So they had this on their minds right from the beginning. And the Portuguese plan was informed by Switzerland's efforts and ultimately their success. Right. Um, so they they had that um, uh, really well thought out. They clearly linked it to prevention. They said, actually, the we've got to deal with this crisis, but but the biggest focus of this plan is preventing problems among youth. Mm. And when you get your head around, okay, how would we go about this social reintegration thing? We've got to think about like for people who need supports, getting back into the you know, getting a job back, or people who need to have housing and integrate. Well, if you get your head around all of those things, you're already down the track to building out a prevention program because right. you you don't want people to become homeless in the first place. Right. And you've right. already got your head around how would we help people to become rehoused. That means you've got the capacity to help prevent people from becoming homeless in the first place. Mm-hmm. Here in BC, I don't I mean, I'm still waiting for someone in, at the provincial level to talk meaningfully about prevention. And that's not a that's not a problem for tomorrow. It's a problem for today. Does, the doesn't only it feel like we've kind of given up though? Have, sorry? Doesn't, doesn't it feel like we've kind of given up though? Like I, I just mean when when, <laughs> when when I go downtown, I live in Victoria. Right? Like when I walk downtown in Victoria here, like I kind of feel like, okay, let's just give folks drugs. 
you know, we'll put folks in some hotel rooms that we bought and, you know, they're shoddily managed. They're not great. There's no access to any services, but we, it looks like we're doing something. It, it, it really feels like we've just given up and that we've said, yeah. well, we can't, we can't solve the problem. So why even try? Let's just give some drugs out. Am I, am I being too flippant? Cause that's what it feels like. Uh, I, you know, no, I, I, I hear that, um, that, uh, you know, we've got this, we're now leading, uh, we're, it's, it's not really the right way to put it, but Canada has kind of surged into a position of international prominence with um, the rate of medical assistance in dying. Wow. And we're on the, we're on our immediate horizon. I think it's next March. We're um, uh, potentially going to be expanding the scope of medical assistance in dying to mental illnesses, which would include addictions. People have likened what we're doing through this safe supply emphasis to 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 MAID and to a palliative kind of process uh, like medical assistance in living. Um, the the Stanford Lancet Commission. Um, reviewed the opioid crisis in the US and Canada in a lot of detail. It's a 50 plus page report. They have a lot of, they three things jump out in this context. One is they explain like, why, why did this, why is this problem really taken off? Um, they spend a lot of their focus though on things we can do to make a difference for the better. And this is where I think all of our focus needs to be. Um, so social reintegration and preventing homelessness and that kind of thing are, are part are on the list. Mm -hmm. um, they also say there are a couple of things, though, that governments shouldn't do. And one is you shouldn't try to increase the pharmaceutical supply of drugs in the hope of displacing the illicit supply. They said that's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. They also say you shouldn't think about providing drugs to people using vending machines. If anything, people need more interpersonal contact and support, not less, right? Mm -hmm. Safe supply and vending machines are two of the things that we're emphasizing here in BC. <laughs> so it, it's, um, it, you know, we've, one way of interpreting it, um, and, and I should emphasize, I live in BC, I do, I've, I've, I've done a lot of work here, a lot of intervention studies um, around the province, and in the recent years of this crisis, I've I've not been invited to you know to to play a role in any of the actions. Um, and I want to get into that. I do want to get into that. Okay, okay. Um, uh, but uh, um, but from my perspective, um, which now uh, you know, is admittedly a little bit a little bit removed because of that, what what I've seen is um, a very kind of insular process for developing our strategy that's not connected to what happened in Portugal or Switzerland or what the Stanford Lancet Commission is recommending. And instead, it seems to reflect a kind of not only, uh, you know, what 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 a group of BC based people came up with, but they're they're mostly the BC based people who were involved in our public health sector and that worked very closely together in the HIV AIDS crisis. And that's kind of the sort of the, the on-ramp. So our former provincial health officer, um, while advocating for safe supply, developed a heroin company that yeah, he was right. positioning to provide the product. Um, the, his partner in this 
was a, a notable HIV uh, researcher who's now the scientific director of the Michael Smith Foundation. So, so these are two senior people advocating for safe supply, having a company. The deputy provincial health officer, um, also advocating for safe supply, also an infectious disease doctor, is the one who started the vending machine company. Um, and uh, uh, two of the people who were directors at the BCCSU, one was Perry Kendall and, and another, another uh, physician that came after him, um, also started pharmaceutical companies while in these roles. So there's a very, um, this is actually gets to one of the points that the Stanford Lancet Commission raised when they were explaining the genesis of the crisis. And, and one of the key things that they focused on was uh, um, a, 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 a systemic breakdown in regulation of conflicts of interest across different sectors. So from the pharmaceutical sector to the um, health professional training sector, so medical schools and others, to, um, the, to regulatory environments and, and, and pharmaceutical companies. All of these um, were too porous. People were able to move from one role to another um, and profit personally along the way. So we, we here in BC, it, 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 this has been reported, the things that I mentioned are in the public domain and have been reported, but there hasn't really been any real sort of recognition that part of the answer to your question, how did we get here? How come we have such internationally kind of odd looking uh, um, approaches? Could it be because of the influence of people who were in positions of authority and who were also able to advance things that would um, benefit them. Um, so is, is that part of the explanation? And I think that that we need answers to that. Is in, that, in that, my that actually sends shivers down my spine to think that there are people who were and or are in positions of some kind of authority in regards to public health in BC and helping those who are on the margins and the most vulnerable making a buck and patting their bottom line at the end of the day when they come out of it because they're they're in close proximity to decision makers um people's health and lives be damned uh, that is appalling um well i, <laughs> I you know, don't know what to say i think we need to i think like i think we need to examine it um for people that are listening and are interested um fran yanner uh y-a-n-o-r has recently written, I think, the most complete sort of description of this um, in terms of you know the details and the players involved, um, and and you know it's hard to say uh, if if profit is is a motivator or uh, um, or you know if um, um, being right <laughs> is a motivator or 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 if it's actually neither of those and it's purely a reflection of a of a of a desire to help, right? Um, the, the problem with the, that latter uh, explanation, though, is that um, that's not what the available evidence would lead you to, um, to, to, to focus on if, if you were going to you know, do your best to come up with a problem and uh, to, to come up with a solution to the problem. And, and um, so, why, so why wouldn't people do that? And it might be because many people in BC, and especially going back to those HIV AIDS years, um, many of the people working in that area and who were exposed to, to addiction um, saw that people were not getting better. 
they saw, in fact, that people were increasingly concentrated in the downtown east side. And it's all it's like a one-way ticket. People come in, they don't tend to leave. And so they may have developed a kind of perspective that this is the best we can do. Uh, you know, your observation a few minutes ago, mm -hmm. you go down and you think, well, people are like, well, this is the best we can do. It's like palliative care. Yeah. And it, it could be that that mindset somehow, you know, pervaded the um, the thinkers at the table when they were kind of contemplating how can we address this. But but the, the truth is that the literature in the field of addiction, which I started with, um, and more than that, mental illness more generally, um, should give us immense reason for optimism that change for the better and increased wellness are are within reach and that's really i think you know where we should be focusing all of our attention i um i, I don't want to digress too much from the conversation but you 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 mentioned that in march it looks like the made medical assistance and dying legislation will be expanded to cover mental illness I was watching the House of Commons, which, yes, I'm a nerd. It's something that I do. I watch House of Commons debates. <laughs> I'm probably like less than 1% of the Canadian population that does this. Uh, but but I digress Save there. <laughs> <laughs> I digress on that. Um, I was watching debate, I think, on second reading of that legislation, and there was a Conservative MP, and his name uh, skips my mind. I think it might have been Dan Albus from the Interior of BC was talking about uh, a constituent of his who uh, was, was suicidal. And um, how how terrifying it, it is for the concept that MAID could be there to be used by folks who have a mental illness and could be using it to uh, uh, advance the cause of, of ending their own life. And that hit particularly hard on me because I'm a suicide survivor. And I can't imagine being in a place when I was 22 where instead of uh, being rescued from that place, going somewhere where I never would have gone back. Um, I, I digress, but I just, I, I had to make mention of that because because it's it's a horrifying place to go when we give up as a society on people who need help because we've just decided it's too hard or it's too much work or it's, it's I, I'm being glib, but it, sometimes that's how it yeah. feels, especially folks like myself who deal with mental illness every single day. Like sometimes it feels like we're a bit too much work for the system. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I I do, and I I think you're I think you're onto something um, important. Um, this sort of macro theme of um, um, of giving up hope, and uh, we we absolutely cannot afford to do that, and we we need very much for our leaders not to give up hope, and um, you know it. it one way of seeing the, that giving up uh, giving up hope is is in the you know trying to explain our, our current approach here in BC as being you know this like this is the best we can do and it's sort of palliative. Um, another way we see it though is people in in decision making roles making decisions that are you know balancing what good can they do for other people and what good can they do for themselves and for their next gig and um you know seeing that play out you know i've i've, I've had a chance to read over uh, some of our our uh, premier's prior statements david eby's prior statements on homelessness and addiction and mental illness 
And um, some of his statements are, are very much at odds with what his government has done. And um, it, almost like you, you, they, they just like two different people. So, um, you know, what's behind that? What are the motives for making th these pretty disastrous um, decisions? And it's, it goes beyond safer supply and, and the neglect of people who are suffering on our streets and, and, and obviously suffering mentally. Part of, you know, I should mention that people, we, we've shown this in, in, in BC that the people who are most at risk for long-term homelessness um, are people struggling with serious mental illnesses as well as addictions. And um, fully 25% of the people in that group were previously in foster care. Mm, yeah. But all have, um, this won't surprise people, but, but all of them have um, incredible uh, um, troubling histories of, of what we call adverse childhood experiences or ad just neglect and abuse and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it's, we really need to focus on, um, and we can't, this is the good news here. There's so much research showing that we can intervene, that it doesn't cost more to intervene. We need the courage to spend differently. And it was really disappointing to see this government um, fully briefed on the evidence from randomized trials regarding how to most effectively help people and instead really double down on the status quo, large increases in spending through BC housing for more single room occupancy of hotels. We saw what happened about a year ago now with this kind of scandal at BC housing. That was, that was after all the money flowed out. Mm -hmm. The scandal was not a surprise to people <laughs> in, in the business. Um, no. So none of, all of this should have been predictable, but, but what it showed me is that the government was unwilling even though it knew that there would be better outcomes from spending differently, it was unwilling to take on the work of changing how we spend money, how we organize um, our activities, how we measure our activities and hold ourselves accountable. None of that was of interest. In, in fact, uh, the, the, the measurement side of it is a piece that I had been closely connected to for about 20 years in BC, examining information that, that's linked across multiple provincial ministries, uh, concentrating on homelessness, addiction, mental illness, crime, and it's produced a lot of a lot of information, but it also provides us with the ability to assess how things are going year over year and in different locations. And when I provided uh, the suggestion to provincial deputy ministers that, that this was an important time to continue measuring and monitoring because we're not only seeing more problems, but we're but we're investing a lot more in potential solutions. Um, one week after I gave that presentation, we got a letter ordering us to destroy the database. Oh my God. This came out of the blue um, after 20 years of continuous operation. Um, it's hard for me not, and there's been no good explanation provided for why they did that. Um, and, and it's just hard to come up with one. Um, but so it's left me seeing what the government's chosen to do and um, uh, um, that it's clearly not working. It left me really with the strong belief that the motivation was they didn't want there to be a, a, an objective record of how things were going and what kind of performance uh, British Columbians were seeing for our, 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 our public spending.
because um, they knew they knew that it wasn't going to work well. I'd shown them that, and and uh, but they but they were going to go through with it anyway. So this this is a uh, this is getting back to fatalism, right? Yeah. And people seemingly in government roles making decisions that have a little bit maybe too much to do with where they're going next in their career, mm -hmm. rather than with what's best to do in this role for the people living in crisis. I feel like the principle of follow the money applies, uh, Julian, um, in, certainly in this circumstance. Uh, and um, this government it seems to be allergic to key performance indicators uh, by <laughs> many, many stretches. Um, yeah. I want to ask you specifically, because you mentioned uh, that um, you're kind of on the outside looking in and providing your commentary from an outsider's perspective. And I just want to give listeners um, a, a bit more of an appreciation for where you come from. You're, you're, you, you have a, a, a master's and a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, you have the Summers Research Group. You are a distinguished professor um, at SFU. Um, you're mentioned in over 150 different publications. And you even won SFU's award in 2018 for excellence in supervision in engineering, medical, and natural sciences. You seem to be someone who the government should be talking to and listening to. Um, and that's and I'm not saying that to, to pump your tires. I'm saying that because you've got the practical experience, certainly as someone who worked at Riverside and who has the experience there, um, your experience in Seattle, um, and you know, you were the president of the BC Psychological Association. I can't for the life of me understand why you're not somebody who the minister of, of health or deputy ministers or the minister of mental health has on speed dial um, to be getting advice from. We've gone a little bit into this, but I, I wonder if you can muse a little bit on why you think you're being excluded. Yeah. Is it is it a you issue? Is it an anybody who has your perspective <laughs> issue? Like, is there a censorship aspect here? Like, what's going on? Um. Wow. In some ways, I'm I'm not a great person to answer that question, <laughs> but 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 um. But I guess in the interest of completeness, I I probably I probably need to provide some of the answer. Um. I you know. It's it's been pretty clear, um, you know, from the from the eighties when when we were deinstitutionalizing, we um, we we all did that around the world mm -hmm. because the evidence was already in. So this is in the through the nineteen seventies and the nineteen eighties. The evidence was already in that it was better by a large margin to support people in community-based settings, they're in their own sort of home environments. I mean, when I say home environments, I'm talking about their communities mm -hmm. um, rather than in institutions. And it was known we could do that. And that when we did that, the results in the short term and especially in the long term were far better for people. So we knew that and we, and we closed Riverview and other places around the world. Here in BC, it was with the logo closer to home. That's the mm -hmm. promise we made people closer to home. That. And, that. We, yeah. and we failed to follow through. We did the closing and we didn't do the build out. So um, I think that, 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 and that's been going on for a long time. When, when, when Senator Michael Kirby wrote, a, a, did a, you know, the last extensive investigation into what's up with mental health and, and addiction in Canada, 
this was in 2006 and 2007, um, he wrote Out of the Shadows at Last. It reflected thousands of interviews. And the main point was we need to follow through on the commitment and, and the term used throughout the document is community-based, recovery-oriented approaches. And the, rec the community-based is probably easy to understand. The recovery-oriented is um, really about minimizing the harms that people experience as a result of their symptoms and promoting the long-term um, uh, experience of, of citizenship, of membership in a community, of a fulfilling life, right? And so it has to do with that. Um, so we, we, we didn't do that. And it's been written about people that pay attention to this area should know this. And yet for, for elected officials and people in government who are facing more problems per day than they can tackle in a kind of whack-a-mole fashion, mm -hmm. this has been a problem. But they didn't have to deal with it in order to get reelected, in order to get in order to get promoted. They could focus on other things. So essentially, it's 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 one of perhaps several cans. Foster care would be another one that we've been able to kick down the road, you know, mandate after mandate. And yeah, we don't like kicking things down the road, but we want to get reelected. Mm -hmm. We want to move forward. So we got to kick something down the road. Let's just keep kicking the one that's been, you know, kickable so far. Now it's changed. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in this transition, I, I think we're in a period of transition because we're clearly in a crisis. Mm -hmm. So um, what happened was not the people who were um, the best connected to the issues, because that would include not only clinical psychologists or you know people like myself, uh, psychiatry, uh, family medicine would mm -hmm. need to be very much involved as kind of you know like often the leading edge of um, client or patient care. Like the, the, you'd go to these sectors, but that's not what happened. The leadership went to a group that used to be part of the HIV AIDS Center for Excellence. Right. And, and there, that's the BC Center for Substance Use. So they're, they're really uh, uh, calling the shots and they're in that role in part because they were very well connected to people in government addressing that previous crisis, HIV AIDS. So um, their ideas, as we've discussed already, are kind of idiosyncratic mm -hmm. and people like me, but not just me, any other clinical psychologist or psychiatrist, um, if, we, if we, we got together in a group, we would be coming up with interventions for the province that look more like what Portugal did, look more right. like what Switzerland did. Right. Um, and um, I think that the, the current government gambled that they could take that step and sort of kicking the can down the road, but with a lot more money behind it. Um, and, and that it would be okay, you know, sort of pass this basic smell test. Right. Unfortunately, it should never have passed the smell test. And um, now they're in going into a provincial election in less than a year. <laughs> I think they have a real problem on this politically. It may not matter if there's vote splitting on the right and the NDP cruise to another win that, you know, they, they may not really care, but, um, but I, they're going to increasingly have a problem with this because there's, there's, there is no reason to believe that the investments that we've made, the direction that we're pursuing is, is going to result in, in, in a, in an improvement. Um, if it, if it was going to, it would have already, 
Um, so we'll see what they can come up with with enhanced communications around this. But um, but there's no sign that there's um, a willingness to acknowledge um, really um, policy failure mm -hmm. and um, and embrace uh, an alternative approach that well somebody's going to have to like we we have no standards across current addiction service providers in DC. We have no standards across the not-for-profit societies mm -hmm. that are providing housing and support to people who are exiting homelessness. There's that's and we don't monitor what they're doing mm -hmm. in a systematic way. These should be basic, basic elements of any healthy response to helping people. Uh, I, you know, I would still emphasize prevention, but right now I'm talking about just like where we're currently spending money, where people are accessing care. The, there should be standards. There should be supports for people to to um, uh, maintain their practices at the highest level, and and there should be outcome evaluation so we know who's doing great, who who can we support to do better. Like this should be normal, mm -hmm. and right now it's just all it's deliberately hidden. Um, I hope that this type of discussion, like what we're having, and many many people in the public sort of looking at this kind of um, syndrome. Homelessness, crime, addiction, mental illness. I hope that this is a you know a, an opportunity for people to um, shine a bit of a spotlight on the on the problems that we have and on the opportunities that we have to do a lot better and make that part of you know the next election um, and and then we can hopefully you know focus on other things again. This has been absolutely preoccupying. The 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 concepts that you're talking about here they don't sound controversial they sound actually much more hopeful than i think what you have why in your estimation looking more to kind of a ground level um uh, uh perspective do you have people involved in community on the ground who are so opposed to this there there are people on the ground either in the drug using community or um whatever people who have recovered or or who are advocating um who still very much think that this safe supply approach is all that's needed. When your approach here, and I know this is not just your approach, it's an approach of, of your, your colleagues and certainly an approach that's worked in Europe. Um, why on the ground is it so opposed? You would almost think, even if there's a, a government intransigence, you would think that those on the ground who are directly involved in this and who have seen that it's not working some of them would be more open to, okay, well, we've got this wrong, let's shift. Is there a reluctance to admit that it's not working or to admit fault or to admit responsibility? Why do you think on the ground there's so much resistance? Yeah, I mean, there, there is, there is, um, there is, there's outspoken resistance from, I would say, uh, a proportion of people working in the, like actively working in the sector, so deriving their incomes in some way from addressing the types of problems we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I, but I think there's actually a much larger group that is silent. Mm -hmm. And they're, um, they're not speaking out, even if, they, even if they're opposed to the, the policies that we're currently pursuing, 
they're basically biting their tongues um, for various reasons. So this is this is true for people who are in more sort of precarious positions with their employment, and if they speak out, they're going to lose their job. But it's also true for people in relatively senior roles who are simply instructed by the communications department wherever they work that um, before you say anything about safe supply, um, you need to go through us. Mm -hmm. So my, my colleagues who work in psychiatry and in, in other senior positions have, have told me that, like, gee, Julian, I'm, I'm so grateful for what you're, what you're writing and what you're saying. I wish I could join you, but, <laughs> but I'd be taking a real, you know, I'd be violating our policies and there's a real chill. Mm -hmm. So if, if, but if we look at the people who are most vocal, um, they, they tend to have um, uh, a, an interest, like a financial interest, um, their job. Mm -hmm related to um, advocacy for, for so-called safe supply. Um, they're, 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 it's true also that there are drug user groups, um, a, a couple in particular uh, that happen to have longstanding ties with the HIV AIDS center. Um, there it that, is again. <laughs> that, have been, that have been advocates. And you know, for them, I, I think that their, their advocacy, I, I can understand a little differently because if I get back to kicking the can down the road for decades, these are th these groups include people who have experienced that brutal neglect mm -hmm. year after year, and who often have asked for very sensible and quite modest things and been just overlooked. So I, I think there's a, a, a legitimate feeling of um, marginalization and really a, a, a life or death type of struggle uh, that um, people are experiencing. It's real. And, the, and on their side, it's life or death. And on the other side, it's government willing to, you know, provide some really small crumb of support or not, right? And that dynamic is terrible. And um, I, I, I believe it's made many people, many people that I've worked with over the years, angry and mistrustful. Um, and it makes sense. It, to me, it makes, it makes sense. Right now, all of this is kind of going together and, and, and people with differing motivations, differing needs, different hopes are forced in a sense to choose whether they're on the, you know, the red team or the blue team, or because it's not, it, it, the, the conversation has been kind of crude, I, you know, like either you're for safe supply or you're um, for killing people, right? It's like you know, this kind of like very stark and, and not very constructive uh, dynamic. So again, conversations like this and, and more people involved in this conversation is really what we need in order to kind of get past this log jam. Um just as we wrap up, I can't believe we've already gone through an hour. Um, it's this time goes by fast. Uh, you know, I talk on this podcast a lot about leadership. Um, and in your perspective, as a distinguished professional in this field who has been working at this in public health for how long? 30, 40 years? Yeah. What do the, so yeah, for almost 37 years. Yeah. Clinically coming, coming up on a, on a birthday. Pretty, pretty soon. <laughs> what, um, what does leadership for you look like in this sector from a government perspective? Because at the end of the day, it's government that sets the policy and government that sets the direction. So yeah. in order for there to feel like there's any hope in 
in this. I know next year when we get our numbers for op opioid deaths, it's going to be, we're going to have another record-breaking year. Like, I, I think you can almost mark your calendar by it, which is not what anybody wants to see. Um, so for you, what does leadership look like from, uh, from a government perspective on this problem in this issue? Uh, um, th this is perhaps the key question. The, um, what we've learned about how to, or how to do the best we can um, for both prevention and um, helping people exit crisis um, is that it requires the coordinated resources of multiple government departments, the way, the way we tend to organize things. So it's not a it's not a health problem or a justice problem. Um, it's not a problem that needs a minister of state uh, focusing on this. It's actually a problem that requires the coordinated activities of justice, of health, of social and economic development, even of of of, of jobs and employment, labor. For sure, it involves departments responsible for reconciliation and for foster care. So all of these really need to be um, working in coordinated ways for different segments of the population who are at risk. So easy example is someone with a serious addiction is released from prison or discharged from a hospital. Right now, one of our recent publications showed that of 4,000 people who'd been admitted to St. Paul's Hospital for addictions or other mental illnesses, they stayed 4,000 people, they stayed for an average of three weeks, fully one in five were discharged to homelessness, and no surprise, they were twice as likely as others to be readmitted in the same month. So this is more evidence that we're doing terribly at coordinating across different sectors. Mm -hmm. And this means from a leadership perspective that an understanding of these issues must be a strength of our premier or someone that's advising them and that they're willing to kind of, you know, outsource their brain to. Um, but but this, this requires coordination at the top of government. And then as we see increasingly in um, the, the, the letters, the mandate letters that are sent to ministers in jurisdictions that have embraced this approach, we see those letters cross-referencing. So you'll address foster care or addiction along with your colleagues in, in these other departments. And so you, the expectation is there in writing, you'll work together. So, so that's a big part of it. it. Devolving from that is the willingness as a leader, and this is now the whole, the whole leadership team, the willingness to change operations. It does not, in, in many instances, require increases in budget or substantial changes in budget. There may be short-term changes that are uh, adjustments that are required to allow for sort of phasing in, phasing out. But the point is that um, comparatively, the cost of doing things far more effectively is not more than we are currently spending. But those, those leaders will require the courage to do two things that we just have not been doing. One, as I said, is alter the structures that we're using and how they interact. And the second is systematically measuring things so that across sectors, we can see that, okay, so that, that three week stay in hospital resulted in stable and better health 
for this person in the, in the subsequent year or subsequent two years than what they were experiencing before because we we weren't in contact with them we weren't able to support them stably in the community that kind of thing so we can pull this information together and see it um, we have benchmarks for these things we're not we're not we're not going you know we're not inventing anything um, so those would be sort of three three main things um, and uh, you know we can certainly do it I think there's a real appetite to doing it. And people who are currently in jobs working in the sector um, should feel utterly unthreatened by this mm -hmm. because the bottom line is helping them to be more effective in the roles that they're playing and, and recognizing that, that they have some of the most critical expertise to bring to bear in the sort of um, uh, health human workforce. I mean, they are the people that we need to be um, uh, engaging as part of a, a, a new normal, but let's accept that we can improve. Let's accept that we can improve by um, investing more in ourselves, more in our collaborative efforts, um, more in paying attention to what are some standards that we that might we might, we might be able to use to improve what we do, and let's let's have the courage to um, look at our own performance. Um, in you know in safe ways, none none of this none, none of this is particularly novel or threatening. But let's 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 be those let's let's be those people, right? Let's be those people who assimilate information, measure how well we're doing, and then you know I'm convinced we'll be able to brag about it. Um, but but it, it's gonna it is gonna require leadership at the top and ministers of state in this province, especially BC, have unfortunately predominantly been a cop-out and 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 of the worst kind not only does it insulate the, the the leader or premier from having any kind of obvious direct responsibility it even insulates the health minister mm -hmm. from oh well you have to ask if, if it's an addiction question you'll have to talk to my colleague who has basically no money mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um so it's it's essentially you know a, a do nothing strategy a kick the can down the road strategy yeah, I think when I, I saw, um, I don't know if this is still the case, but a, a short while ago, I saw that the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions has a smaller budget than the Premier's Communications Office. And I thought that was kind of not only shocking, but indicative of just how serious the yeah. mental health crisis is. And didn't didn't you report at the top that that communications budget's going to grow? Well, it looks like it's going <laughs> to grow. So, um, you know, let's let's talk about it more and and continue to Oh well. Um, <laughs> we should uh, be optimistic, man. Like I, yeah. I don't want to leave you. I don't want to leave you feeling burdened and sighing. We should like we're in a really bad place, and, but we know we're in a bad place because um, it's drug poisonings are the leading cause of death now for not only adults but for kids ten yeah. to nineteen in BC, right? And and that's happening, uh, you know, as we see changes in our communities, and and we you don't see those changes every place around the world. We know it's something to do with our dynamics here in BC, and whatever we're doing doesn't seem to be working. So so yeah, that's absolutely super heavy, but we sh we need to remain, um, I think, try and balance that with the the evidence that 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 some of our problems actually require government intervention in order to make them this bad. Mm -hmm. And and on the other hand, if we got government working in, in, a, in a really effective way on solutions, we could we could transform our communities and the well-being of, of people that we see suffering. So so we, we need to, I think, 
remain, uh, you know, deeply, deeply encouraged and optimistic and believe in, in the capacity of British Columbians as more and more people become attentive to this and don't have vested interests. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, they're not trying to, they're not looking for a job being a part of the solution. They're not, they're not trying to defend a job in the status quo. They're really, you know, going to the polls thinking, okay, what's the best decision here, right? And those people will be, you know, are major, major assets. And so, like, like I said, this type of conversation, um, you know, we need to be doing this all the time and, 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 and sharing it with other, others in our, in our communities, especially going into the, the next round of, of provincial and federal elections and asking candidates questions, you know, doing, doing, doing all that kind of thing. And, and we can make things a lot, lot better. I, I appreciate how hopeful and optimistic you sound because I, I do want to end on that note of optimism. And I think as long as, and again, I'm not trying to pump your tires, but as long as you're out there speaking truth about this, I will feel more hopeful because I will feel like there's people out there like yourself who know what need to happen and know how to get us there. And we just need to be listening to those folks who know the path that we need to take. And I think in this, uh, in this hour we've spent together, you very clearly uh, uh, pointed out what that path looks like and and how we need to go there. So I, I want to thank you for that. Do you have any final thoughts to share with us, Julian? Um, well, I, I wanted to acknowledge, you said it really uh, in passing. I don't know if listeners would have picked it up, but, um, but you and I are both um, living illustrations of, of the ability to um, uh, withstand um, you know, incredible darkness and suffering that affects us mentally and get to a better place. And, and it, often, you know, it often requires work. Uh, I think you touched on that, but you know, that's another reason for us to be, to be encouraged is to remember in our own lives, many of us or people that, that are very close to us, that there have been, you know, not necessarily this fentanyl overdose risk, that kind of thing, but, but there have been extremely dark, and 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 heavy and even life threatening moments and 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 yet we have survived and that, that that's another source of optimism we we there's 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 a miracle of um, potential wellness that exists in people and that includes the people that we see that are that are that are suffering and appear to be suffering um, uh, hopelessly let's remain hopeful. Dr. Julian Summers, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this conversation. I really hope we can reconnect again in the new year to uh, catch up and see where I'd we're at. But in the meantime, thanks. And uh, best of the holiday season to you as well. Thanks. And to you and to all your listeners. Thank you. Thanks for being out there and for continuing to push. I, I follow you on Twitter and I think that you're, or X, I guess is what we're supposed to call it now. Um, and I, I, you're, you're- Elon's place. Right, Elon's place. And your, your, your um, engagements are always very helpful. So, so thanks for, thanks for everything. It's that great to hear, man. It's great to hear. Yeah, and it's good. It's great. It's, good. It's, it's like, it's lovely to get to know you and, and, you know, just even just a teensy bit about, about your background. Uh, it's very, it's a very one-sided discussion, right? But, um, but it would be great to come back and, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully there are some developments that, um, that, that you see that might, might warrant that. I'd, I'd, I'd be delighted. Thank you.